You're listening to Missing Panther. Just as I turned into the driveway, there was this big, massive, big black cat. I like animals and I just let it be because I thought some of these smart asses would go and shoot it. It was enormous. It was as big as a sheep. This thing was way bigger, way bigger than my dog. I mean, this thing could have killed me. Piece of cake. Anyone that thinks a feral cat is as big as this bloody panther, <laughs> no way. You know, the US military came out because they were their mascots. They got told that's it when you leave Australia, that you're to put them down. The guys couldn't do it, so they all shut their mouth and released them into the bush. Apparently they had black panthers down there and they were supposed to destroy them when they left. Apparently they didn't destroy them. The last few weeks, my inbox has been running hot. With more panther witnesses rolling in, I decided to branch out a little. So I contacted more regional newspapers across the country in places where panther reportings were high. It always felt a little strange pressing the send button with these emails to think my little hunt for panthers was even worthy of news. With an overactive mind, it was hard to try not to picture what was happening on the receiving end of these emails. Most of the images were usually the whole office standing around the computer, laughing away as they sip on their morning coffee, slapping their knees at the stupidity and ego of such a request. (laughs) It's not evidence if it's just an anecdote. Let's do some proper news now, please. (laughs) But I had to put all those thoughts aside for now and continue my journey. As more witness accounts came in, I never got tired of hearing the stories. But I did begin to wonder, if there was really panthers in Australia, how would that even be possible? So, I altered my question list and began asking people what their theories were on large cats getting to our shores. As it appeared, a lot of the stories were much the same. In the Hawkesbury we had the Richmond Rat Base, which was used a lot in World War II and the Americans were out there and we did have a a man who said his dad always told him that he drove some Americans out after the war out past Colo and they let two animals go. Someone told me a story the other day about an army base that they reckon was down in Glen Alice. Apparently they had black panthers down there and they were supposed to destroy them when they left. Apparently they didn't destroy them. My neighbours, who was in the first and the second world war, he said the Americans let them go because they were told to get rid of them. They had them out here as mascots and uh, they bred up. It's March 1942, in the midst of the second world war. Pearl Harbour has recently been bombed and now Australia is under threat from a Japanese air raid. American troops have been sent to Australia by the thousands. These US servicemen are being deployed to every capital city across the country, 
With an overloaded quarantine system, it's been rumoured that these troops were able to sneak in a wide range of animals to have as their mascots. Witnesses speak of seeing dogs, horses, monkeys, bears, as well as puma or mountain lions. After stretching my search a little further, I was contacted by Leanne, who grew up in Halls Gap, a small picturesque little town which sits at the base of the Grampian Mountains in Victoria. Being a history teacher, Leanne was able to shed a little light on the story of American soldiers and their mascots. Historically, mascots go back thousands and thousands of years across all cultures and continents. It was a way of just humankind representing some of their warlike features through an animal, whether it was an eagle, a bear, a mountain lion. They not only exist for um, soldiers, but also for sporting teams now. We have the same thing, trying to find some sort of animal that exhibits bravery, courage, you know, fearsomeness. So mascots not only represent some aspect of of, of human nature that we hope to aspire to, but they also represent something of your own country. So for the Americans, I mean, you know, we didn't have mountain lions here in Australia. Uh, mountain lions represented something extremely American to them. Leanne was quite knowledgeable on all things history when it came to World War II, but this wasn't just from flicking through a few uni textbooks. Her parents and grandparents were there and had quite an interesting interaction with the US servicemen. Um, Myrtle Bank Guesthouse was in Halls Gap. It ran through most of the 1900s and was one of the most popular places for Melbourneites to come and holiday um, in the Grampians. My parents worked at my grandparents' great-grandparents as well as um, great-aunts and uncles. And so they, they spoke of the American soldiers staying there. They were a lot of fun. They used to like dancing. And when they had leave, it was just common for them to come up to Myrtle Bank. The mascots that my grandparents and father and aunts talked about were always the mountain lions because they were the ones they had first-hand experience with. Basically, they were smuggling them in. So, of course, superior officers wanted to know about this. Uh, and the problem with mascots, easy enough to bring them into Australia if you were on uh, coming in on, uh, with, on military craft and you weren't, and the customs wasn't as strict as what it is nowadays. Uh, the problem is, um, if they were exotic animals, they did grow larger. You know, my grandmother always spoke about being surprised at seeing these huge cats being led around like dogs. The dogs were terrified of them, so I always remember my grandmother saying um, the dogs just hid. They were terrified of the fact that they were around. The mountain lions that came to uh, Myrtle Bank, they were large, They but the soldiers had said they brought them in as cubs and they were meant to put them down, but they didn't want to. And their choice was pretty much either put them down or try and release them. Part of one of her you know, stories that she'd always talk about was the fact they genuinely really liked these mountain lions and didn't want to put them down. They were being careful about where they released them. They, they wanted the, to release them in a place where they wouldn't impact on livestock or other people, um, but that they would have a chance of survival. And, and Victoria Valley and the Grampians sort of fulfilled everything for that because there's, um, uh, you know, cats could have a large a large area to hunt in and at no stage would they come across livestock. The Grampians back then was a lot larger and wilder than it is now 
and it seemed a fairly obvious place to them as um, a, a safe refuge for the mountain lions rather than putting them down. Um, she spoke of three coming at one time. She saw them put them back in the vehicle. They went away um, and when they came back that night, uh, they didn't have the cats. They brought the mountain lions and took them straight down to Victoria Valley and released them. Years after the release of the Pumas, Leanne's father had an encounter of his own. Um, my father saw them after they were released. Um, they went driving down through Victoria Valley and he saw uh, one of the cats loping along um, next to the car. So it was sort of really uh, almost a relief in a way um, to, to find out that they had released them. When Dad saw them uh, driving through Victoria Valley some years, quite a few years after the soldiers had released them, it was just accepted they were mountain lions. These were not, you know, indistinct cat-like creatures in the distance. This was something um, 10 metres from the vehicle loping alongside the road. I know they were released in World War II in the Grand Pumes. I, I mean, I know that as a fact. And, and is it possible for them to be there and be hidden? Absolutely. I mean, and people get lost in those mountains and die. You can't find them. Um, so the, if you can't find a person that's trying to be found in Australian mountains, it's fairly easy to accept that you can't find a large predator that's trying not to be found. When I heard Leanne's story, I began to concentrate my search around the area of the Grampians a little more. It wasn't hard to find out that there had been ongoing reports of large cats around that area for years, but that wasn't all I found. In 1975, a man by the name of John Henry, with a team of environmental science students from the Deakin University, began conducting a study which they labelled Pumas in the Grampians. When I heard about this, my first question was, how would a study like this even come about? Well, I'll let John tell you that for himself. The Puma study commenced, I think, in uh, 1975. And at, at, at that time, I was a senior lecturer in environmental science at the new university, Deakin University. I used to take my students out on excursions to different parts of Victoria so that we could study firsthand uh, different ecosystems. And one of the excursions that we did was to the Grampians. One of the students decided that he would check out the spotlighting equipment that we had. He grabbed a spotlight and went out behind all of the, the, the ring of tents. And, um, and after a short while, he came back all very excited about something odd that he'd seen out there. He was ridiculed by the students, they just thought that he was being uh, uh, over the top. Anyhow, um, he was insistent that he'd seen something really odd out there. So I and another student said, OK, let's go and we'll go and have a look with you. So we went out with him. We, he, he was the only one with the spotlight. 
and his shoulders front light uh, to the back of the clearing uh, where we were camped. Down low under a, a bush, Spotlight picked up two eyes. Uh, they were yellowy green eyes from memory, set quite apart, low to the ground. He turned around to face us and took the spotlight off the uh, animal. And as he turned to put it back, there was nothing there. In my mind at the time, I knew that it was an unusual sighting. That I couldn't, I couldn't really place it with what you'd expect to see in the ecosystem of the Grampians. On the Saturday, I took them across to an area where I knew there was caves. In the caves, the students had a fossic around and they found in there three remains of animals that had been clearly consumed or torn apart. There was a uh, hind leg of a, of a wallaby. There was uh, an opened up carcass of an echidna. And there was the skin and remain, remains of a possum. I then said to them, well, look, I'm familiar with the stories about uh, big cats in the Grampians. On the way back, to Geelong, where we were based, they they asked, how about we continue and with further excursions and check out on this story of pumas in the Grampians. That's how it, um, it, it began and eventually that's what we did, yeah. Conducting the puma study back in the 70s, John was able to communicate directly with American servicemen who were stationed in bases south of the Grampians. Although quite cooperative and happy to talk with John, when he started poking around about large cats, things changed a little. So when we asked, we asked an open question to start with, did you have mascots? And they, they, sent, they sent us photographs of dogs and I think in one case there was a horse, a pony or something. And then we followed up and said, well, uh, what about uh, big cats? Did you have anything like that as a mascot? and they, they were silent on that. Except for one uh, warrant officer who said, well, it could, could have been a possibility because when the, where they were based, where his group was based, um, before coming out to Australia, he was aware that there were Puma mascots within his group. John and his Puma study group were contacted later by two other sources who claimed they witnessed activity by the US servicemen firsthand. One source of information was to do with a, a, a group of US Air Force personnel that was, was stationed, they were what they called bivouacked or camped out from Mount Gambia across the Victorian border near the township of Haywood. And they were adjacent to a, a farm, a sheep farm property, and there was a woman, uh, Adams or Adams. She identified that amongst those men, uh, there were light, uh, there was a light-coloured puma, and the puma had four kittens. Three, three were light-coloured, and there was a, a dark-coloured uh, one as well. 
Uh, her claim was the Pumas were seen with the US unit camped in the bush next to the property. Her comment was that they were always getting twiddled up in sticks and falling over and that the army boss overseeing this group of airmen uh, said he couldn't stand it. The Puma was getting savage because her kittens were being hurt. And so he, he told the men that he, wa he wanted them to get rid of her, uh, plus the cubs. Uh, the men put the Puma on a truck and took her and her cubs up into the Grampians. They let her and her cubs out in the middle of the night in, the, in Victoria Valley. The Puma didn't want to stay, she wanted to come back with them. But there were some rabbits up there and so when uh, the Puma ran after them and the kittens ran after her, they got into the truck and left and that's the last I saw of them. Now, the second account deals with um, the US Airmen who were uh, located for a short time up at Milk, and it was a, uh, a Mr. Malcolm Weir who lived in Mill until 1943, and he and his mate Roy Coops had been stationed as, gu as guards at the US Air Force base there in Mill, and he reported that an air an American bomber arrived in Mill at the base in 1942 and it had flown in from the north, from the Philippines, uh, Indonesia, and it had a Puma Cub on board. He then reports uh, the Cub was taken by road to a locality on the periphery of the Grampians called Cherry Pool, and the, and the Cub was released there. So they, they were the two eyewitness reports that we were able to access as part of that study. It was at this point I wanted to find out if anyone else had heard stories of large cats being released by US servicemen. As I was scrolling through the comments on Facebook, I noticed a comment from Jade who was claiming that her mother remembers large cat mascots quite clearly. So I reached out to Jade to see what she had to say. She started telling me about 10 years ago, there was a story on the Lithgow Panther. Her and I were sitting there watching it. She said, I'm not surprised that there's panthers there, you know, from what I've seen. And then all of a sudden she started telling me about living in Cairns, which I knew about. She started telling me about walking around the army bases, how the American soldiers were really, really good to the kids and the locals and they would show them their mascots. She saw the, the big cats on chains and she said she heard other things that she couldn't identify. She said they were all, the kids were always running around the army bases. There was not a, never an issue. They were about Rottweiler size and she said they were cream coloured. They were a cream coloured big cat and they always had chains on them later on in life she realised that they were a, a mountain lion cougar so that big creamy thick tailed almost elegant type of a cat it was like they didn't have any fear of the kids telling anyone or maybe they just didn't care <laughs> she said they were relaxed the cats were relaxed 
So obviously the cats were used to all of that noise and um, carry on that goes on in bases. There's plenty of food in, out here, you know, whether or not it be rabbits or, you know, kangaroos or wallabies, especially up that way. There's a lot of food up there for them. The fact that cats are known to be elusive and secretive, they could easily fit in. She said she saw about three or four, but that's what she saw. She could hear other things in the background. She did hear rumours afterwards that they were released, that the Americans didn't take their mascots home. Because when you look at it, they're usually not that far away from former army bases or even current army bases. She said, oh, I saw them in, when I was in Cairns. And it was just a drop, casual conversation. That's when I asked her for more information. And we have since talked about it a lot more. And she gave me a lot more information, which I've passed on to you. I've watched with interest the comments on social media. Um, I've watched the news, you know, the skeptics, the trolls, these people who say, oh, these people are seeing things or they're seeing large feral cats. I think the witnesses are too scared to come forward, especially people from those times. And they need to come out. The stories need to come out. Yeah, you know, because there's definitely something out there. Close to one million American troops stationed all over Australia between 1942 and 1945, there was no shortage of military bases right across the country. Knowing that kind of left me wondering. If I was easily able to find a few cases of Puma mascots being released in the short time I'd been searching, then how many other cases were there that we don't know about? I think uh, essentially uh, the American airmen were under pressure to get rid of these cats before they were required to, to move as fighting units into the north of Australia, uh, unencumbered with these mascots, which were becoming difficult to look after. In their minds, uh, pumas were mountain lions. So to get rid of them, where's the nearest mountain range? And in, and in um, both cases from Mount Gambier and from Nil, the nearest mountain range is the Grampians. With uh, the wildlife that exists in the Grampians in terms of kangaroos and mobs of emus, uh, there would have been adequate food supplies for big cats there, but if they uh, did exist in there and the population would then increase, John and his team had conducted over 80 interviews of people witnessing what they described as a puma. Rather than taking everyone's word as gospel, the puma study group created a harsh system to eliminate as much as possible any chance of a misidentification or even a fabrication. We decided that we would be really strict on putting together what we call a believability. It was a believability rubric that we used we had um, four criteria, I think, from memory. There was the number of observers. We were interested in how many people who were present and together eyewitnessed the event. There was something like about 80 people that we interviewed and we were interested in the, um, the clarity of the observation was that during the daytime, 
a clear day, uh, good light, and how far away was the animal that they were observing, you know, was it within uh, 100 metres or so. And then we uh, we were interested in the expertise of the observer in the sense of their uh, knowledge of the Australian bush, their familiarity with Australian wildlife. The fourth cri- uh, criteria was the frequency of sightings that an individual eyewitness was alleging to have made. We were very dubious about people who had claimed to see a big cat more than once. Okay, uh, and our reason there was that it was this was a rare event. Uh, so someone who's been claiming to see it two or more times raises the question of whether they're over-enthusiastic in their claims. So we were taking a highly sceptical view on what those people had seen, their account to us, and using those believability rankings. You know, we're left with accounts that would say, well, gee, you know, on the balance of probability, they probably saw a big cat. find any physical evidence, John had to send his groups into the most isolated countryside of the Grampians. The bush bashing teams went out. They would be looking for physical evidence. And um, uh, they came back, pockets full of predator scat. Now, in all cases, the information that came back to us was that the predators were dogs. Now, there was one scat that was extremely unusual specimen uh, that matched the size of the puna scats that we collected at the Melbourne Zoo. So we sent a photograph of that off to the puma biologist in America. He came back and said, uh, in his opinion, it was consistent with what he was aware of from puma scats. A few years later, I uh, made contact with a biologist in New South Wales who studied wedge-tailed eagles, and and he, uh, I asked him um, and showed him a photograph of the scat, and in his view, uh, the scat was consistent with a regurgitated pellet from a wedge-tailed eagle. You know, always taking the hard line on any of this, this evidence, we then placed that in the negative category because there was a legitimate alternative explanation for what it, what it was, which we always went for. Right? So that's the story on the, on the geranium spring scat. The other physical evidence that we had, which we weren't able to knock over, was a cast of a paw print that was taken by two duck shooters who came up with a high believability ranking for their sighting. He told me the story that he and his mate went up the weekend before duck opening and they were in a um, dinghy and they came around the corner onto a sort of an inlet and there on on the shore having a drink they saw a big cat and the big cat was right at the edge with its head down drinking. It looked up when it saw them 
and scrambled up the bank and disappeared across the paddocks. They had a view of it for over three minute, uh, minutes at seven o'clock in the morning, clear as day, uh, before it disappeared into the bush. Now they went over to where it was and they saw the paw prints uh, in the mud and they put a little stick markers there intending to come back with a plaster of Paris. They went back to the where they'd marked the paw prints and they took plaster cuts. And they were not dog prints, they were cat prints. So we took photographs of the um, cat prints and I sent them across to the American Puma biologist and he got back to us and said, yeah, those, those prints are consistent with Puma prints. There's a high probability, given all of that, that there were, uh, at that time, big cats, probably Pumas in the Drampins. Now, what we anticipated would happen as a result of that would have been uh, that the population would have either died out or if it um, survived and expanded, there would be, uh, given the biology of Pumas, they would have pushed out uh, as the population increased into other uh, neighbouring uh, suitable habitats, whether that's into the Great Dividing Range across Victoria and up into New South Wales or into the Otways. And, uh, and sure enough, uh, people are claiming to, uh, to be seeing uh, big cats in the Otways, big cats across central Victoria, across into Gippsland and up into New South Wales. Graham owned property around the Grampians years after the US troops were in town and was only too happy to tell me about his experience over the years. I spent a lot of time, 20 years as a shearer, when I wasn't shearing my home on the farm, but I lived uh, I lived up there at the right in, in sort of the, uh, at the foot of the Grampians uh, when we were first married and uh, we, we knew that the cat was there because we'd seen it and heard it and it had frightened the horses and had all the dogs barking one night and it uh, oh, give a, a terrific scream that it'd make your blood curdle. The night we heard it, the noise it made, it was screaming and I reckon it sounded like it might have been a hundred yards away from us, but it was a low pitch growl and it, it was and it just started down low and it gradually built up into a high pitched scream and each time it did that that scream would be 15 seconds you know, like it didn't just make a bit of a noise it just held on and made this terrific scream and uh, it kept it up so my neighbour came over uh, with his dogs and we spent the rest of the night looking for it in the spotlight but and we put baits out thinking we might it might come back, but we never saw it or heard it again. I, I'd uh, cooked up kangaroo meat to feeding the dogs, and I reckon the cat probably smelt that and came uh, close to the house, and um, that's what got the dogs barking. This was uh, one or two o'clock in the morning. 
the, my neighbor's horse. He was galloping it, frantically up and down the paddock. Whether he could smell the cat, I don't know. And I saw one run across the road one night uh, in the lights. And the one I saw was light coloured, like a kangaroo colour. And uh, um, some other people said the ones they saw were black. Well, it was, yes, I was quite close, but I didn't get much time because it ran across the road in front of, just in front of the little ute I was driving, you know, like a um, colour of a kangaroo, like a bit lighter than a kangaroo. I got a good look, but I suppose it was long enough to know what I was looking at. I mean, I can't prove anything, uh, Ben, but I do, I do know in my own mind that they were there because I saw where they'd been and what they'd killed. I'd had a sheep killed, very obviously killed by a cat because when a dog kills a sheep, it tears it apart. But this had laid the skin out like as if you were going to, getting ready to peg it out, eating all the meat off this uh, half-grown sheep. It had obviously grabbed it by the neck and had bitten through the backbone and killed it and then uh, very methodically eaten all the meat without tearing the skin. There was no meat, there was just a skeleton there and a pelt. It had eaten the whole sheep, eaten all the meat off the skeleton. It was just laid out as if you... You were going to peg it out. Yeah, it was quite a clean uh, looking job. Yeah, dog, the, if a dog kills a sheep, it would be wool all over the paddock. I've seen the paw marks. They ran through our dairy farm. We took a plaster cast of it, but I don't know where it is now. It was soft mud and there was a print of a cat as big as my hand. Uh, something fairly large, you know, made it. And no, I'm sure it was up there, and, and there were different colours, so there was more than one. Then uh, this all happened a long time ago, mate. One night, just about a week ago, I was at a neighbour's house. I live in Hamilton now, on the outskirts, and something rang through the, the yard. That looks like the puma. And it, my wife saw it and said to my neighbour, I didn't actually see this. And it ran into the uh, a vacant paddock, which is a golf course, and then it ran, it jumped out and ran out on the road again. They got quite a good look at it, but this was only a week ago. Although panthers and large cats have been spotted by thousands, it wasn't easy for some to come forward. To set yourself up for unnecessary ridicule, is it really worth it? Jade explains why her mother kept her story secret for so long. She has made it very clear that she didn't want um, her name mentioned or surnames mentioned for fear. She kept saying um, she's an old woman now and she doesn't want to be ridiculed by anyone. And she said people won't believe her. She's not that keen on it, to be honest. <laughs> she's, she's not that keen on it. It's more my decision because I feel that these stories need to get out. She said that she was afraid. She believed that people would think that she was crazy or that it was a kid's imagination. I saw they did that even with Grant Denyer. He and his wife saw one on his property and they made an absolute fool out of him and I thought, oh God. 
As it turns out, Grant Denyer and his wife witnessed a large cat on their property. I almost thought twice about contacting Grant. Between his TV appearances and radio shows, news programs, game show hosting, racing cars, racing utes, and being a family man, I thought there'd be no chance. But like every other email with this project, I thought, what the hell, and threw a line in the water anyway. And less than a couple of weeks later... Grant was able to squeeze me in for a chat a couple of days before Christmas while he was in the middle of a stint doing breakfast radio. So now, somehow, my journey has come full swing again to the very town I grew up in, Bathurst. Being in the public eye and seemingly quite open about his encounter, I couldn't imagine Grant was too concerned about any ridicule, but I thought I'd ask anyway. I couldn't give a shit. I was, I was really excited. You know, I told the story on radio and, you know, people think you're mad and you're mental. I love fascinating Australian outback stories and just because it doesn't make sense or it sounds unlikely doesn't mean it's not true. So you can call me crazy all you like. I know what I saw and I haven't seen anything like it. It's a part of Australia's fascinating history and folklore and if you've got a story to tell, yeah, I wouldn't be afraid to tell it. Who cares what people think? The more you talk about it, the more people come out of the woodwork, the more people that have had encounters, you know, guys in, you know, up in forestry areas that have have kind of snapped photos of giant cats that are longer than their car is wide. It just, there's there's too many encounters from normal people for, for you to discount it. I was a cadet journalist at Channel 10 and one of my first stories I did in Sydney was travelling out to the Hills District where a teenager had claimed he was walking back to his house from a mate's house in the dark and something big and black jumped up on him and it was as big as him when it stood up on its back legs. He showed me the scratch marks in his arms and the claw marks were so far apart. You could see the four claw marks and and it was not from anything that was the size of a dog or a cat. It was enormous. I believed him. He he was not being showy. He wasn't really in it to, to get 15 minutes of fame or anything. It was just a story that I'd found in a small local newspaper. And this kid was just, it scared the hell out of him. Um, and he was just explaining it as best he could. And it, and it just, that's, that's when I thought, wow, that is, there must be something. And then I've delved into the history of it and obviously was aware of the, the tales of, you know, whether they be American troops that came out from Africa, had a base, brought out some, you know, some wild animals, and when they left, they just sort of set them free. And I thought, if that's true, well, then this, these, these could be the ancestors of those animals that were set free. We moved to Bathurst. We've been there for six years, and my wife says to me, she goes, I just saw the most insane thing um, down our bottom paddock. It looked about, you know, five to ten times bigger than a normal cat. Jet black. The way that its tail sort of was just straight out the back. Well, and I thought, how many wines did you had? And I'm just like, oh, okay, all right. Kept an open mind. And then, mate, one day I'm standing uh, at our kitchen window, and, and my mate was over as well. And we saw the thing, and I've got binoculars that just sit at the kitchen window. So I grabbed them straight out, and I was like, oh, my God, that is a freaking panther. That is a, holy shit, the story's true. It was incredible. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. 
I took a photo, but because it's down the bottom paddock, I had to zoom in times 10 on my phone, so it gets pretty grainy at that sort of distance, and it was and it was late afternoon, so it was low light. So it's not a great photo, but I just needed to snap it just to kind of, you just have to have some sort of record of it. And I could just sort of see it slinking in and out of these thick blackberry bushes that lined a creek at the bottom of our farm. So we know that there'd been lots of uh, wombats and stuff hiding in there, but we found a, we were doing the fence line down there, we found this weird burrow that was not a wombat burrow and it was massive and something had been living in it. So we thought, oh, this is all, this is all very strange. So I could see the height of it against the height of the fence and it was enormous. It was as big as a sheep. No cat I've ever seen is as big as a sheep. It was so sleek and the way its paws hit the ground, you know, it just it just looked it looked like a bloody panther. The tail was, you know, really long and it, you know, just the way that it moved, I haven't seen an animal do that in the flesh. It was way too big to be a feral cat. I could see the scale of it against um, the height of my fence. I could see the scale of it against the size of sheep. I had a pair of binoculars. Um, so I got to see it in close detail through my binoculars. And it was, it was unmistakable. I thought it was awesome. I thought, you beauty. It's like seeing the Easter Bunny, mate. It's, it's like seeing a, you know, a Yeti. Like, you're, you're a pioneer, brother. Like, very few people have ever had the opportunity to see something absolutely insane that not everyone, you know, knows is even true. Um, I also think that they're very good at not wanting to be seen or found. Um, you know, they've obviously lived quite incredible lives and, and bred and have, have kept to themselves as um, it's probably essential for their own survival. So they're not, you know, they're not out and about. You know what? I kind of like the mystery of it. I kind of like the fact that it's not resolved. I, list, I like, you know, that's it's sort of it's sort of exciting that we're kind of you know living amongst these exotic animals. Yet, who oh, have you seen one? I don't know. But you ask any old cocky, you know, in the area, mate. They've all got tails. Any old boys, you know, down the street that you see in regional areas, you, you know, you ask them about them. You don't have to ask too many people before you know you start getting. Oh yeah, I've seen that, or I know someone who has. I don't mistake what I saw and I don't apologise for what I saw or, or for coming out and saying it either. I just, you know, I think it's, I think it's a really cool story. If you can find a solution or an answer to, to what has been a huge historical question, you know, over more than a hundred years, keep at it. That's, I think it's, I think it's great. I asked Grant if it crossed his mind not to post the footage of the large cat. There was a nanosecond where I thought, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm going to post this and everyone's going to, everyone, everyone's going to want to lock me up in the loony bin. But I was like, nah, man, I know what I saw. You know, I'm not delusional. Uh, and, and it just sort of sparked a little bit of debate and the response was great. And, and, you know, we threw it out on the radio station. We said, have you heard of any stories? And we had callers from, you know, Kiama to Wollongong to Oberon to Lithgow, all with their own personal stories. And, you know, we weren't giving away prizes to the best caller. It was just people who had genuinely had some sort of interaction. I knew that, I'd heard that Lithgow was a hot spot for it, but I was really surprised to see them, you know, to see what I saw out at, in Bathurst because we're kind of, we're more rolling open country. There are some wooded hills around us, but it's, I thought Lithgow kind of makes sense because you're on the edge of the Blue Mountains there. But, um, you know, this thing was, was obviously on the stroll and, yeah, I was lucky to see it.
Although Grant mentioned that he thought Bathurst might be too far west for a panther to roam, it seemed he wasn't alone. In 2004, Matthew had an encounter that was so close, it turned him from being a sceptic to a believer in a matter of seconds. Yeah, so look, I'd been up for the tip, and, and I saw this thing on the, on the left-hand side of the road, which was the higher side of the road, and I thought, well, someone's lost a dog, or it was a bit far away at that point, maybe it's a, is it a wild pig? And it looked straight at me, and then it moved across the road, so then it, it moved quite quickly across the road, and I thought, that's a cat, that's a bloody cat, and because the way it moved, it was the length of the tail, the balance that it had, it was that fluid movement that only cats can do it doesn't no other animal can move the way a cat moves and what really amazed me was that it, 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 it crossed the road and in doing so it went between two guideposts and that's what gave me a chance to really gauge its size was its shoulder height was a long way up this this white guidepost and i thought that's a, that's crazy and i've slowed down as i've got to where it was and I watched it bounce away down this gully and it was, I was in disbelief. I was just, I sat there just absolutely gobsmacked as to what I'd just seen. And, I, and I'm trying to do all the rational things. I'm trying to say, no, it was a dog, or no, it was a fox, or no, it was... But I just couldn't get this image of it moving away, away from me. And I had it in full view for about, oh, it would have been 15, 20 seconds. It was quite a long time that I had it in view. And the way I've described it to people, it, it, it was the size of a Labrador. Like, if, you know, if you put a, an average Labrador next to this, it was about that big, right? Cause, and I could gauge that from the guidepost. You know, the, the physicality and the shape and the profile of a cat, but the size of an average Labrador, sort of golden Trevor-style dog. And, and up until then, I'd, I'd laughed because I used to work at the council and everybody used to have these rumours about the, the big cat. And, and you know, I always laughed, calling crackpots. And from that day, I said, no, I cannot dismiss those people as nothing. This, is, this thing's real. Which, you know, if you've ever been into one of those pine plantations, I mean, you go, you go 20 feet in and you're in pitch black darkness. There's some country in there that is just, you know, if something was going to hide away, great spot to do it. It's real. I, and I sat there, I, I sat there for a good couple of minutes going, I've just seen this mythical creature that I've been dismissing for so long. John Henry predicted that if large cats were to go on and thrive, they'd eventually spread further across the state of Victoria and eventually up into New South Wales. So if this was to happen, shouldn't we be hearing more stories about large cats preying on livestock? Or at the very least, finding the remains of these animals? photos of stock that were being killed and mauled, you know, bloody near on a weekly basis. To get to the calf, they'd kill the cow. They'd eat the calf, and then they'd, the, the cow would just lay there and rot. Or if there was no calf, they'd kill the cow and eat the cow. The back of their necks, 
was all perforated where the caps had been biting them. I'd seen them on quite a number of occasions. Over a 10-year period, my mother and I, we lost over a 1,000 head of cattle. If you're enjoying Missing Panther so far, please tell a friend about it and make sure you subscribe to keep updated on each episode. If you believe you've seen a panther or a large cat, or even if you believe you know how they got here, go to our website missingpanther.com.au. Get us through the contact page. If you'd like to help support the show, go to the website and head to the About page. Missing Panther is edited and narrated by me, Ben Bede. Music is by Warwick Party. Mastering by Paul Gomesall.